The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. There's not much more that can be said about 2020, but on a personal note, a real bright spot was our humble podcast. Ilya, taking nothing away from our first five years of doing this, but I do believe this may end up being our best year overall for the podcast. So we recently posed a question to our listeners. uh, What was our best show? And we got a lot of varied responses. We've never done a compilation episode before, and so it's my hope in this best of episode, our audience will perhaps hear one of our favorite moments from these conversations and decide to go back and try out the whole enchilada. Do it. We say the Cinepod is about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image. And in the past, both art and craft would get a lot of discussion, obviously. But we always find that philosophy is the hardest one to kind of nail down. But that was absolutely not the case in 2020. And we are kicking off this user-curated best of episode with a few minutes out of our extended two-part epic interview with cinematographer Bradford Young, who spent more time than anyone so far talking philosophy. Uh, Our conversation with Bradford is a favorite of mine, and in this clip, uh, it should give you an idea of the broader conversation. So here's a highlight of the Cinepod interview with Bradford Young. Um, You said something that no one's ever really said it to us uh, quite this way, and I think it's really intriguing, so I'm going to dig in a little bit, which Mm. is trying to find your own story in the script as you're reading it. Can you give me an example of one of your films where you kind of clearly saw your own story in the script as you were reading it? and how that manifest? Yeah, I mean, you know, something like, I just make it real, you know, just sort of on the nose, something like Selma is, you know, the only reason why I'm even here on the planet is because within our community, within my community, specifically the black community, we've had dedicated, committed freedom fighters since we were brought here on slave ships. And so that story of Selma has been in my consciousness since I, before I was born, it's part of my DNA. I had an uncle with, who was there, who marched. I've had, you know, family members who, uh, who knew people who were there. It's, I've been hearing about Selma and the civil rights movement before I can remember. And so not only do I, you know, do I hear a story, the story of, you know, sitting at my grandparents' dinner table and hearing about those moments, not only do I hear that or I see that in the film. I see specific moments in the film that sound just like or feel just like stories I heard listening to my grandparents talk about the movement. But um, it's my story, you know? Like, I'm, a, I'm an American who understands American history. And I understand that it's complicated and it's layered. And that in order for us to be better as Americans, whatever, however we evaluate that, value that, we've had to have liberation struggles. We have had to have struggle. And so I see my existence, the essence of my existence here in this in this country, in this space, is came from that that moment. And so I see myself in that. And I think, you know, what's great about that film is that it put us in conversation with filmmakers who we, our elders, honorary elders, filmmakers we respect, it put us in conversation with them because they finally saw that you can merge this fiercely independent filmmaking ethos with this industry thing. And uh, I think that's what you're seeing there is a whole lot of years of us watching films from filmmakers that we really, really respect and love and really paying honor and trying to honor them and the aesthetics and the look of the film, but also trying to find our own voice at the same time. And, uh, you know, for us, that was what made it more successful even. I know I can, you know, I think I can say this for Ava as well, that it made us 
really appreciate the journey. The accolades and the awards didn't mean as much as somebody like Haile Garima or Charles Burnett or, or Uzan Palsi or some of the great filmmakers that we all love. Our honorary elders come to us and say, thank you for making that film and you did a great job. Like, it wasn't perfect. You could have done better, but you did a good job. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And that, nobody, but nobody's making a you know, perfect film. Is, that's like, that doesn't really exist. But um, yeah, you know, that was, that's the win for us. That's but I mean, matter, you know? the fact that it was such a giant success and that it, it really did have cultural resonance and uh, nominated I mean, for best picture of the year. Yeah. Yeah. I yes. Mean, I mean, it's like, that's, that's, I mean, you shot the movie, you shot a movie nominated for best picture of the year. It's like, this is, this is a major cultural, re, uh, you know, resonance with, with people from all over. So that's, that's so huge. At yes. that point. Well, you know, the, you, but you know, the, you know, the cultural resonance though, I'll say, I'm sorry. I know it's not, not, we're not debating. This is not a debate podcast, but you know, the culture. <laughs> feel, you know, feel free to debate with us. <laughs> feel free. <laughs> this is, yeah. you, you we, know, we can you go know, anywhere. The, yeah. But you know, the, you know, the most important, the cultural resonance of that film is that, the most important thing about Selma is not the fact, listen, the fact it got nominated for Academy Award, however you value that, if you respect it, it means a lot to you. If you don't respect it, it doesn't mean anything to you. I respect both ways. Mm-hmm. But for me, the, co- the resonance of that moment for me is that Ava was able to make another film. See, that's, that's, that's what's important, is that Ava was able to make another film. She secured an opportunity for her, for us, for her to keep stay a working director, which is an issue, for black women, women of color, in particular women directors, period. She secured a place for herself to keep working, but she did it in such an undeniably artistic way. Mm-hmm. Nobody could nobody could say that she's not an artist now. Nobody could say that she's not, as the word that they all like to throw out, she's not an auteur. You know, if you want if we if we want to if we want to say there's a cultural resonance for us, it was she got to make another film. But for majority cultural folks who put a lot of uh, value and a lot of coinage in, in the accolades and the whatever, whatever, and the comparisons. But at that point, she was the equal to P.T. Anderson. She was the equal to all of the great, the, the James Gray. She was she's in that conversation now. You know what yeah. I'm saying? She's the, she's she's the she's in the conversation with the with the with the Kelly Reinhardt's and the Patty Jenkins now. Like she's part of the conversation. And uh, that's one thing, you you know, that. I would be be silly and be petty to say that that's not important. That is important because she now she gets to make another film because she's tried and she's true and she's done it multiple times and shown you that she's a real voice and she's a real force and that you can't deny her an opportunity. And it's more I think it's more important for us to for her to continue to make films so we can keep experiencing that euphoria of watching her movies. You know that that for me is the is the is the cultural shift. You know that's that's a black woman in Hollywood who got to make another film. And that does not, that rarely happens. That rarely happened. At that point, it wasn't happening at all. You know what I mean? Well, well, she's now made several and several, <laughs> several great ones exactly. that you can, and, that and you can and, go watch. Yeah, it's, hey, it's, and she's mean, gonna keep making them. She's gonna keep making them, and she's and she's affording other women and other filmmakers an opportunity to keep keep making them. But that rush of which is ultimately a cinematographer's job. Maybe it's a good way to close out. Our job is to make the director happy. We're there to make the director happy, man. The minute that we stop wanting to make directors happy, we should not be DPs anymore. We should go be directors. Hmm. We should go be carpenters. Or we should go be farmers. <laughs> it's our job to make the director happy. And there's nothing, there's no better feeling than suggesting something that genuinely is sparked by the energy and the intelligence and the intellect, the intelligence of the director being inspired by that idea, going into your own wheelhouse, adding your own flavor to it, then representing it to the director and the director being happy with that decision, there's nothing better in the world. And that's the thing that goes back to this childlike thing in us that we really all want to check into, which is 
what my children want to do. They just, my children just want to be with us and they want to make a, they want to, they want us to be happy. You know what I mean? They want us to be happy when they're, when they're six, three and seven months, they don't want us to be happy with the fact that they've, they've, they're not going to be morticians and they're going to be artists. It's not that kind of happiness. It's the happiness of I'm looking at you and everything I'm about is about you. And I want you to be happy because I want to be happy. I want to laugh and be cheerful and run around and play. And I want to be genuinely happy. That's what the cinematography thing is about. It's about that childlike thing. It's not about all the other super stuff that gets in between. Sorry, I mean, use that word, but all the silly stuff that gets in between of making people happy for other reasons that are just loaded with all the other baggage that, yes, your parents probably did to you, but <laughs> all the other baggage that doesn't make sense, does not really make sense at that point. But this, this is that childlike thing that makes filmmaking fun. It makes filmmaking fun. It's like when you can lower your guard and go back and say, oh, she's happy without being like, <laughs> without being, without, and without feeling guarded about saying it. You know what I mean? Being like, oh, yeah. she's happy. That, you know, and turn to your crew. And let's get back to the crew thing. Let's turn to my crew and be like, thank you. Thank you for helping me make that person happy. In 2020, policing and criminal justice reform was very much at the forefront of the minds of Americans. And perhaps the greatest documentary about the U.S. criminal justice system is 13th. Like Selma, 13th is also an Ava DuVernay project. It's an incredible movie, originally released in 2016, and according to Netflix, subsequent to the murder of George Floyd, there was a 5,000% increase in streams of the movie. Kira Kelly, who shot 13th, was nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award for her work, and I was fortunate to get to speak with her back in March. Let's hear how she came to the project. So tell me a little bit about your experience with 13th. I have to talk about 13th. I sure. want to talk about it right away. Yeah. Uh, you shot probably the definitive documentary on incarceration in America. And yeah. it it's like, for me, it also really put Netflix on the map as a documentary powerhouse. It was, uh, it's an incredible movie. And uh, I, I just rewatched it again the other night because mm. I wanted to have that experience again. And thankfully enough time had gone by and boy, it's like, it's it's incredible. So tell me about how that came to be and how, and, and about the process. Yeah, so 13th will be a movie, it's still to this day, that one of the pieces that I am seriously the most proud of that I've worked on, and not not because of the way it looks, not because of how we shot the interviews, but just because of how important that story is, is, was, you know, like it's still so timely, like continues to be, for continues sure. to be. Donald Trump is still in it saying crazy stuff. So I will, that one will always hold a pretty special place for me. I... Initially, before we started working on that film, I knew of the director, Ava DuVernay, by like, you know, social media. Of course, I knew who Ava was, like, you know, following her. I got this email one day from her assistant saying, like, Ava wants to meet you. And um, that's a nice email. It was a really nice email. (laughs) And we ended up meeting at this Pinkberry and had frozen yogurt (laughs) together. I was so. Did you get the mochi? Of course. (laughs) We got Nutella on the side, which was lovely. Um, And it was just like the most wonderful meeting. And it turns out, you know, she had in mind this VR project that she was going to do, but they didn't didn't end up going through. But then she was like, well, by the way, I'm also working on this documentary. Would you be interested in just this little with documentary that? that's going to become exactly. the definitive 
story of incarceration in the in the, yes, in the U.S. Yes, it's a yeah. small thing. And of course, I was like, yes. And so, you know, we, uh, I, I was one of the DPs with Hans Charles, who was also incredible. And um, the two of us, like, you know, figured out, well, mainly it was Ava led. Like, she really was not interested in like a talking head sort of interview mm. and um, or just like the standard talking head look. And I know that like in each interview, she really wanted to visually elevate the people that we were talking to. And like we were talking to, you know, people like ranging from Angela Davis to like a mother who had her son in solitary confinement for decades, like really, but wanting to give each of them that same sort of weight and, you know, just the same sort <laughs> gravitas is the wrong word, but importance in a frame, you know, and uh, she really, um, really really pushed me and pushed us to really get creative with how we frame things and how we found locations. Like there was a really incredible location scout on the job that would find these places that were like, we really wanted to touch in the feel of like the industrial and industrialized look that kind of tap into the fact that, you know, because of slavery, black people built, you know, significant parts of the infrastructure of this country. So we really wanted to sort of like go for buildings that had beautiful architecture or like for example where we shot Angela Davis was like this old train station. I was going to ask had, you about that. It's so yeah. striking that that room, that that room it's that she's beautiful. in. It's, it's cavernous and incredible. And yeah, and it was but, had this beautiful like patina that was kind of like falling apart a oh, little yeah. bit, and the paint chips and all this. I take it it was still, a non-working train station. Non-working, but yeah. they still, I, I think they still do like parties there or events and things like that. So it's definitely more of like an event space. So oh. the the sort of natural, you know, decay and exactly. entropy that's that's going on in there. Yeah. 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 And I think and for for me, it was just such a pleasure. Before then, I had done a lot of interview, a lot of documentaries and, you know, of course, with like a lot of traditional interview setups and things like that. And a lot of my first jobs as a DP were in the documentary world. And I'm not sure if that's like, you know, at least when I was coming up, I think that was more of an entryway that was accessible for women. And so it was, you know, I, I had a lot of experience with that, but never had I had this sort of experience in working with Ava where it'd be like, you know, she'd go on set, come on set and be able to say, this is what I want. But then in the same breath, be like, well, what do you think about it? And kind of just really was able to, you know, play with her and like figure out like uh, how to shoot beautiful stuff. And I'm like for that, you know, we shot, I can't remember how many days of interviews we actually shot. We shot a bunch and I kept expecting to hear back from them. Like, um, okay, we got some B-roll shoots coming up. So we got some days and at first they're like, no, no, we don't have anything like that scheduled. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'm sure, <laughs> you know, once you get into the editing room, you will. And they didn't like, they really created this, like, you know, from all of the archival footage, of course, but then all the graphics that they did with all that information, like that, I just thought that they did such a great job in not only making it visually interesting as far as the interviews, but also the graphics and all the information. Like I, I'm, I think the movie is wonderful. Uh, so, so what was the journey for you then? You, so uh, you applied for film school. Did, yeah. you, did you go to film school? I did. I went to Northwestern, just outside of Chicago. Oh, sure. And um, it, Northwestern is an awesome school for, um, they were wonderful in film theory, which I'm super, still thankful to this day. I had this professor named Tom Gunning, and he was just like, you know, we had this like Fritz Lang class and like just super, super into like the language of cinema. Like cinema is filmmaking is a language and like you have to learn that language in order to communicate so they were wonderful wonderful theory classes that I just totally 
geeked out in. And then, but a lot of ways, like, you know, to get the hands-on learning, of course, was to work on other students' projects. And so as, as much as I could, any chance I got, I would work on older kids and like graduate students' projects. And uh, I worked in every department. And then one shoot, I found myself like in the lighting department. And I remember like, I remember we did this setup, which in hindsight was not that big. I think it was probably like for a medium shot, but I was so excited. I was just like, we had all these C-stands, there were all these nets, there was all this diffusion, there were lights. And I just remember being so proud of the rig. I was just like, oh my God, this is awesome. And then the DP let me look through the eyepiece and you didn't see any of that. We just saw the effects of all those things. And it was like, like mine alone and that was it I knew that that was lighting like was what I wanted to end up doing and really just sort of had this whole thing where we can create this world that the audience never sees but is you know affected by it so intensely and so that was it I I I started shooting as much as I could I started uh, you know working in the lighting department during the summers like I would stay in Chicago and work in like you know sweep out lighting trucks of some local companies and stuff like that paying dues exactly (laughs) (laughs) yeah over the past 20 years Greg Frazier has had a meteoric rise he's become one of the most in-demand DPs working in the world and was nominated for an Oscar for his work on Lion. He also shoots the highly popular Mandalorian TV series. Yeah, it's a little, little thing he does on the side is the Mandalorian <laughs> revolutionized all of television. And he shot uh, both the highly anticipated 2021 release of Dune and is currently shooting The Batman, slated to be released in 2022. So uh, here is a clip from my interview with Greg Frazier. When was the moment that it first occurred to you that cinematography was a thing you could do? Um, I'll tell you exactly the moment. So I used to be a photographer. I started. I joined a production company in Melbourne called Exit Films that was photography and film, and I saw people making commercials. And I'm like, oh, I could become a director. You know, I think, hey, this directing thing seems pretty good. So I sort of started veering towards direction, thinking that's maybe what I wanted to do. And then at some point in the process when I realized I actually did not enjoy directing... I, I watched cinematographers work and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I kind of know what they do, but I'm not really, I kind of know what they did, but like they're lit and they shot similar to what I did with photography, but I didn't really quite get it. So I watched a film called Rat Catcher that Alvin Kutcher shot and Lynn Ramsey directed. And effectively what that film is, as well as an amazing story with amazing characters was stunning photography. And I say photography not cinematography because its underlying basis of that movie is photography and i looked at every image and went oh my god that's i can do that like that's what i do (laughs) i'm a photographer that's what i do i take photographs and like i i wasn't saying i could do it better than alwyn because at that point i was like fuck this is amazing but i went that's what i do that's what i do that's what i enjoy doing we would be remiss not to talk about lion i just leaped at it of course because it had everything Mm -hmm. that i wanted to do it had you know, wonderful characters. I was getting to work with one of my best mates on an amazing story that, that, you know, if you didn't know it to be true, you'd think it was, a, uh, you know, made up. Lion for me was the, was the sort of the, the epitome of that, where it was a great story. We got to go back to our home city to shoot it in Melbourne, as well as India. Uh, we got to shoot the story of a, a plucky little kid who was a survivor. You know, he is absolutely the kind of the, the type of person you want on your side. Yeah, he is a survivor. He'll always survive. He'll always succeed. He'll always do well because that's his, um, that's his mantra. Mm-hmm. And when you're working in India, this is something that I'm always interested in when Westerners are going to a, 
a place like India where we don't see it in our movies on a regular basis. I mean, we see movies over here like Slumdog Millionaire, obviously. How do you go about making sure that you're not exoticizing the people in those countries when, when you're filming them? How do you how do you bring us in with your Western eye, even if you've been there and you're very familiar with it? How do you how do you balance that? So, so there's always the danger as Westerners going into countries that have very different cultures and mm-hmm. and i've i've heard that expression a number of times that people have asked me it's called poverty porn and it's 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 something it's a very kind of a serious thing where like people rich people want to see what the poor people are like but they don't want to actually go there they want to see it on screen and that is and was a, a very real concern on that movie for me and for garth but also on even on other projects where we were to go to to other countries so the main thing is that i think we were trying to be very very respectful and and not showing things that that were not true uh, or, or that we were trying to create situations that didn't exist. Now, obviously it's a film and film, we create situations. That's what we do. But I think we were trying very hard not to, not to put the boy in clothes that were more bedraggled than he, than he would have been in, you know? So that's the thing. We tried to make sure it was honest. Like Garth Davis as a filmmaker is such an honest filmmaker. He tries to get to the heart and soul of the characters, which I think, again, to pay respect to those characters who are real people, to pay the the absolute utmost respect to those people and not to over-sensationalise it or not Mm. to sort of make them poorer than they were or richer than they were for any other reason, just just to be honest with the situation. And, you know, hopefully we did well there. Like I tried, we tried to make sure the camera followed him and his story. So very much made sure the camera was at his eye level where possible you know and and that i don't know if you've ever stood in a an indian railway station at the height of a child and i did and i it's just amazing it's like when people coming at you it's like a sea of people and if you're a normal height person sorry an adult's heighted person it's not as it's not as scary but imagine being three foot three foot two like yeah you know, i did that i, I, I stood on my knees I sat on my knees, I should say, and and just absorbed what would happen when you have people that that uh, surround you, and it's like being surrounded by by the waves, by water. It's like drowning, and so a big part of our philosophy there, which goes back to your original question, was just about being honest, and that's the way we achieved that. As you know, the best way to destroy your enjoyment of any type of food is to have too much of it. Yeah. Or is you know is to stuff your face with it. So I'm like, oh, I have a I have a deep fascination with Star Wars. The last thing I could, should do is spend a year in the reeds of a Star Wars universe. Mm. You know, because making a movie sometimes can be a little boring. I mean, I'll be be frank with you, and it's. It, it's, it sounds it sounds really disrespectful to the process, but some days it's like grind to grind, and some days it's the same as yesterday. It's the same as yesterday. You just might be in a different set, just different words. Like if you if you break it down, if you're having a not a great day, sometimes making films can be a little bit of a grind. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, I'm never I'm, I love it to bits. I'm just being a little bit honest about that. So the idea that maybe going through a bit of a grind with Star Wars. I was like, I'm not really that keen on doing that. <laughs> so, so I, I get, I got the call. He asked for a meeting for his new film, and and I went, well, I can't say no to that because first of all, I need to pay him kudos anyway, and like, let's go to San Fran. Let's go and 
you know, see where, let's go and see Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, and then, <laughs> and then, and and thank everyone for their time, and wave goodbye, and say that I've seen the factory, you know, like and leave. But I remember about ten minutes into him showing me some of the concept work and talking to about the story, I I was like, I can't not do this movie. And I do recall actually there was a bit of a conflict possibly with Lion. That was my biggest thing because there was going to be possibly a clash between the two films, and I remember thinking. If I if I can't do this movie, I'm gonna be heartbroken. Both of them, like, so it was funny. It only took me ten minutes to the point where I totally changed my opinion from uh, I, I I can't do a Star Wars film to I cannot not do this movie. So it was funny how that kind of worked. But you know, going back to the whole grind of filmmaking, like Star Wars is a funny thing because I recall the first time we saw a um, an X-wing, a full-size X-wing. We walked into the Cardington sound stages. They just built the, the the Yavin set, and I saw a full-size X-wing for the first time, and it was like being six again, where yeah. I just was so giddy and so excited and so utterly overjoyed to be standing looking at a full-size X-wing. And it didn't take long, maybe two or three days before when we were filming, to actually get really sick of these X-wings because they're big. <laughs> They're bulky, they get in the way, they're hard to they're hard to move, and they block light. So they're a pain in the ass. So they're, they're impossible to move. They look fantastic, but they are a pain in the butt. <laughs> and so I, rec- I recall it took three or four days to the point where I'm like, I wanted to film this way. I'm like, oh, man, there's a fucking X-wing in the way. All right, all right. So listen, if we, if we pan left a bit, then while we're doing that, can we just shunt the X-wing out of the way? And I guess they weren't on then, wheels. You couldn't just the, 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 you know, shove them. <laughs> they're yeah, they're on wheels. They're on wheels, but they're big and they're. If you look at the engineering mm. of an X-wing, it, it's it, it's not designed by an engineer. It's it's not. So wait, so they don't fly? <laughs> no, uh. not, not yet, not yet. But but, but I've seen them fly. <laughs> I know. But the flip side of that story is, okay, so I got really annoyed with the X-Wings, but I'm walking down Hollywood Boulevard the week of the, the Rogue One premiere because I just come out of the AAC or something. And there's a there's a, there's big hoarding up. There, there, there's something going on behind the hoarding. I'm like, what's that? And I see one of the guys from London who was one of the builders of the X-Wing, and I see him walking around. I'm like, oh, dude, like, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, we're, we're rebuilding the X-Wing for the premiere. He goes, come in. And I, I went inside. I saw my X-wing again. It was like again being six. I was like, ah, oh, that's the X-wing. That's my X-wing. That's so cool. I, mean, it's, I, I, I just it's imagine now you brushing your teeth in the mirror and looking over your shoulder, and outside is like an X-wing. It's like everywhere you go, there's now an the X-wing following you. So. Yeah. yeah, but it's just amazing how, and I can, I understand now. Like my kids were a bit young when I made Rogue One to fully understand what Star Wars was, but they now are so passionate about star wars and passionate about mandalorian like the the, them and the lego and they're so annoying because they keep asking me about all these characters that i don't know about in clone wars and in in episodes one two and three which i don't know like so so they're so passionate they're like the younger me which means that's why i didn't want to do another star wars film because i didn't want to destroy that passion yeah that i that i had for star wars but but i haven't and it was it was quite a amazing experience working on a Star Wars film. And yes, to go back to your very early question about it being nerve-wracking, absolutely. It was beyond nerve-wracking because 
this was my childhood and my my friend's childhood and we wanted to make a good honest star wars movie when we first talked about starting this podcast there was a short list of people we really wanted on the show and one of them was Anthony Dodd Mantle. Anthony is like 100% to the core, a true digital pioneer. He won an Academy Award for Slumdog Millionaire. And over the past 30 years, he shot some of the most visually memorable movies I've ever seen. We got to speak with Anthony Dodd Mantle just as his new HBO series, The Undoing, premiered. And here's Anthony talking almost poetically about shooting the series. It's, it's a weird, it's like a rich New York Gothic. It's almost like a blue velvet, but set in modern day New York. I mean, I very quickly want to get, I mean, I, I kind of love less genre films than uh, a lot of people, but I, I can think in terms of films like, you know, Gotham City, about Batman, you know, Nolan's work on, on those trilogies or the, the two main films he did. I always sort of see New York from the very first time I visited it as an overworld and an underworld. You know, it's this, this very mm-hmm. obvious great metropolis. It's the same in Mumbai, even though it's a, it's a developing city that not so many people know, but I know Mumbai, Bombay very, very well. And it's like this overworld and underworld really exaggerated by these pin-like high-rises going up in Mumbai. And in New York is that. They always used to be big, but now they're being overshrouded by these objectionable modern pieces of architecture that are all about paying less in taxes on the surface area of the building. But anyway, whatever. So <laughs> when I look at when I look at New York and I see this overworld and underworld, I kind of start to look at that and I relate perhaps consciously the character of Nicole and Donald and, and, and Hugh and this whole world, you know, in the undoing to this world. And what Susanna and I talked a lot about in the valuable prep we had, because she's very busy maybe always in prep on other things, but she was certainly busy on the script and developing that to her own satisfaction. So I was left quite a lot alone with her occasionally and with the rest of the crew and, you know, the production to try and an art department to try and work out how we work. So, so I start to look for our alphabet, as I said, together with Susanna, and I start to think about what symbolises... We're obviously going to spend 80%, 90% of the time in the studio, in the sets, with brilliant actors talking a great deal of time, you know, with a very powerful script. And it's going to be a lot of that. That's the DNA of the script. And I've got to try and find something else outside that and around it, together with Susanna, that doesn't polish, but actually sabotages and, and, and suggests something else, enigmatic underneath and between the lines, between, between the floorboards of their very wealthy world. So we start to talk about the ground level. We start to talk about symbolism in nature, in the architecture, all the energy, that the combustion of this incredible city New York has. We start to look at symbols, and I very much start to, just as I travel to and from recce's and studios, I just stare out of the window and walk the streets and look at things in a different way, starting thinking about my characters, and I go into that tunnel, which is how I work, which is why I always get lost when I'm on a recce, because I never know where the hell I am. And I never cycle to work or even walk to work. I generally get driven because I'm so much in the film that I actually start to live the film and live the characters. And I'm subconsciously looking for stimuli all the time that I can feed into the scripts. And what that led to was a developing project Susanna and I had, together with art department, developing ideas and themes that would ultimately become very, very important as a characteristic to New York and to the the supporting character to all these walking human beings who are speaking lines and playing the roles in the film. There's this this beast of a New York that's out there. And what became very obvious to Susanna and I very quickly is we would be very dependent on being able to do what we could ourselves outside the buildings, but also adopt 
a well-functioning splinter unit to help us to go out and shoot these things, which is a really enjoyable task because they get a kind of shopping list from Susanna and myself and, and they're sent off on their you know, on their rollerblades with a little crew to go and poke around, which I used to do when I was doing documentaries. <laughs> and it's, it's a great way to work. And they come back with good stuff and they come back with less good stuff. And gradually that, you know, that collects together to be a, a nice pile of imaging for the, and relevant imaging, not just, you know, Discovery Channel, no, no disrespect, not just pretty images and, you know, tapestries of beauty. There is some beauty there, but there's also other stuff that can be used as symbolic, metaphorical comment to what's being the main part of the film, which is actors talking in confined spaces. So what did the alphabet for The Undoing, can you give me some examples of what was in the alphabet? Yeah, you? so for The Undoing, I started to write a document, which I've got on my, my window or on my window somewhere, but I want to start sharing it because I know I'll cut somebody out of the, the conversation because I'll press the wrong button. But I basically, <laughs> I basically combined a document with images and thoughts and not necessarily so much... Um, parallels to other films but basically just my, my own library my own pictures or I grab pictures that I think are interesting and manipulate them and show them to Susanna and they're about smoke they're about fog they're about nature they're about weather they're about wind they're about metropolis they're about underworld of the tube you know of the metro they're about people bustling together um high speed uh birds in the trees, you know, um, bridges, traffic, all the metropolis stuff that you've seen before. And it will be done again and again and again in many, many films, going back to Fat City. And there are many films where, you, you know, where great filmmakers have been to New York many times before me and done better jobs. But you start to find that alphabet of, of metaphors, of symbols. Mm -hmm. And I knew I'd be living here. I wasn't living there, but we were working very close to Central Park. So I get into Central Park and watch Central Park from Grace's location, you know, the Donald, Donald Sutherland's apartment, looking down from the, the looming balconies like a Valkyrie, you know, down onto the... I'd watch people running and people disappearing in the misty evenings of Central Park. And I watched the lights coming on at a certain time of day. I watched the mist coming in, you know, when the lights come on and go off. And I just study New York and gradually convey that to myself, convey it to Susanna, and slowly things get sorted out. They get sorted out. And normally mm. I'd do that myself in a film or I'd try and do a second unit afterwards or before or like with Danny Boyle, who we work very often together with. I'm I'm disappearing somewhere into the, the fields with the mini crew already now, three or four weeks. I'm not meant to say that. But before we start shooting principal, we go off and do things, you know, because we know each other well. And this is what we tried to establish with Susanna because it was a, a large project that we were working on for the first time. And it was about New York as a character. Up next, we have a clip from our two-part interview with Wally Pfister, perhaps known best for his work on movies like Moneyball and his longtime collaboration with Christopher Nolan. He won an Oscar for Inception and shot yep. many of the most successful movies of all time. He's also humble, charismatic, and uh, man, can this guy tell a story. He is really fascinating to listen to. Let's actually hear about Wally's humble beginnings in film school and working for the legendary B-movie producer, Roger Corman. Always love a Roger Corman story. So I'm sure a lot of people know your work from, obviously, the Christopher Nolan collaborations that you did and also movies like Moneyball and The Italian Job. But you started, obviously, with uh, Roger Corman, which I love talking about Roger Corman. Uh, so many just brilliant DPs came out of those early days at Roger Corman. C can you just, like, take me back to the to, to the fairy tale world of Roger Corman filmmaking in the in the I guess it was probably the 1980s, 90s, that area? 
Yeah, I guess uh, yeah, the fairy tale is an interesting way to put it. <laughs> it was <laughs> they're pretty wild times, but for me, you know, to go through my sort of experience on that, I I had just um I was finishing my last year of uh in the cinematography program at AFI and I had met Janusz Kaminski through um a mutual friend and uh who I was going to school with and Janusz had been to AFI the year before. And Janusz brought me on uh, he was working as a as a gaffer and second unit DP on these small Corman films that uh, Faden Papa Michael was shooting, and so I kind of fell into it that way. Janish brought me in, and I met Faden, and Faden and I became fast friends, and I ended up shooting second unit for him. But so I'll, I'll paint a, a, a picture of this, uh, you know, factory, which is what we <laughs> sort of considered it, which was, you know, it was on, it was in the heart of Venice. Now that real estate is worth a fortune. Now it was on 600 South Main Street in Venice, California. And uh, it was an old lumber yard. And Roger, of course, was titled King of the Bee Movies. And this was the late 80s. So this was like, I was around there in like 89. So the way the way that place worked was they were just cranking movies out and, you know, roughly 12 movies a year. So there was always a movie in pre-production, a movie in production, and a movie in post-production constantly. So everybody was around all the time. Roger was actually in an office across town in Brentwood uh, that was far more pleasant than the uh, the lumber yard was. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, I, I actually remember one of the first movies that I was asked to shoot second unit on. Um, you know, I, I jumped in as an electrician with Janish, got to know everybody, you know, made my connections, uh, and then was uh, was offered a, a movie to shoot second unit on, which they, they had another little trick where they called the films by, they would change the title of the film after you shot it. Because obviously the title that you want to use to attract uh, actors and to get people to come and work on the movie is different mm -hmm. than the movie than the title that you want to put on the VHS tape to try to sell the movie. <laughs> In other words, the the latter is far more exploitive. Um, so I I came to work on a movie called Nightlight and shot second unit on that. And uh, it was released uh, as Slumber Party Massacre Part 3. <laughs> I, I do believe I have seen that film. I'm, oh, I, I'm very impressed. I'm very impressed. That, well, that's that horror movies are my jam. So, but I, I, Well, the, this one, I, well, the, in the first movie I ever shot as a DP, it was about this uh, unborn fetus that goes after its parents and, and you know, basically uh, uh, kills his parents for aborting it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so dark. It's so grim. Um, we had this this animatronic fetus for the movie. So it was. But so these films are like the you know this was my baptism and the first you know the the movie I was, I was speaking of Nightlight Stroke uh, you know Slumber Party Massacre Part Three. I remember one of the first things I was sort of asked to do. They're like. Okay, well, this this girl's sitting in the driver's seat of the car, and you know she gets a drill through her stomach. The the, the you know the bad guy is is in the back, the seat behind her. I'm so there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and stick to drill. So you know they have we had these two effects guys, the Jones brothers, who'd come out from North Carolina, where obviously things were jumping after uh, Evil Dead, and you know the kind of beginning of the North Carolina film scene, and they did all the effects on every Roger Corman movie it seemed and so they had rigged like this plastic drill bit to the front side of her belly covered up by the clothes 
And I braced myself. I'm like, all right, I'm going to get a cool angle on this. And, and so I braced myself in the, in the foot well of the passenger seat so I could shoot a, an up angle of her. And the idea was they turn on this electric motor and the, the drill bit turns and then they just crank this blood through that thing and splatter this blood uh, through. So, so sure enough, you know, we're rolling. I'm, I, we're shooting this on a, here we go, getting technical. It was an Airy 2C, which we shot nice. everything on. And they flipped the switch and this drill bit starts to turn a little bit and then it starts to wobble. And then they hit the blood and the blood just shoots the drill bit off of her uh, her belly blood splatters all over the entire uh, entire car interior, all the windshield, all over the lens, all over the camera, and uh, and I remember I was wearing these like Converse All Star sneakers, and I kept them for oh, years. They were just completely splattered and blood red, and they were kind of cool. I was like, oh, this is kind of you know, this is the <laughs> Roger Corman edition, you know, uh, uh, Chucks, you know. Uh, so I kept those for many, many years in a closet <laughs> afterwards. That's but awesome. I just found myself walking out of there, like, completely soaked in blood in my clothes. And, and the DP of the film, like, kind of saw me over there. I was the second unit DP. And he kind of saw me. And I'm like, man, I just fucking destroyed my clothes. And, I, and he's like, <laughs> welcome to Roger Corman. <laughs> welcome to uh, New, Concord New Horizons was the name of the company. But, That's um, amazing. Yeah, so the story has it, and you'll hear Ron Howard tell this story, and you'll hear every director that, that went through the, the mill saying, you know, Roger's line was, you know, if you do a good job on this film, you'll never have to work for me again. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, uh, we all had that on our minds, you know. Um, and I, I think I, but I think I, I did two, two movies there, you know, as DP, and both with Rodman Flender directing, and then... Uh, and then managed to, to graduate from there. What was it about Corman? Because I feel like we've had, uh, there there have been plenty of like very awesome low budget outfits that have cranked out movie after movie after movie over the years. I'm thinking of things like Full Moon. There's tons of them right now. There's The Asylum. But I feel like, and maybe it's just because it was so long ago that everyone kind of grew up and, and, and became a big deal. But I feel like so many outrageously talented people, directors and DPs and actors, uh, came out of do, working with Roger Corman. What was it about the environment there that was uh, nurturing the talent? Because everybody kind of tells these stories where it really does sound like you're just thrown into the trenches and have to just work your ass off. And uh, were you encouraged to do great work? What was it about that environment? You were encouraged to do fast work. <laughs> that was, mm -hmm. there was, there was no, it's that you had to bring the aesthetic with you. You had to go in there <clears throat> knowing what you wanted to get out of it, knowing that you were just going to, you know, you look, they were taking from you. They were, <laughs> they were exploiting us uh, in that we were cheap filmmakers coming out of film school. Everybody, you know, it's all, it was all in, in LA, you know, some of these other companies like Troma was, a, it was in New York, you know, and Full Moon was here, but Full Moon, I think was later on. It was kind of their own Whereas version. PM Entertainment was another one. Exactly. Right. PM Entertainment. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember like having meetings with those companies and not getting the job and it, was, and it was like oh man uh but yeah these guys were around but here we we all were here in la and all these film schools were you know dumping us out onto the streets and um <laughs> And we had to figure it out because I got to say, man, I went to AFI and you go to AFI and it's very prestigious. And if you're coming from the East Coast, it's like this is the American Film Institute and you're very lucky that you've gotten in and you are a cinematographer. And it's like, 
I luckily I was just old enough to know that you know to try to keep some level of humility because you're not a cinematographer you are a student <laughs> you're, yeah. you know and the directors are students and the you know producers are students so if you take that shit too much to heart then you're gonna end up um, <laughs> walking out of that place you know thinking that you're qualified to direct a film or thinking you're qualified to shoot a film or whatever else but no your film school continues and you know if you take the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hour approach you know you got to do your time before you're gonna do anything decent so that's what we were doing. We were cutting our teeth, you know. And luckily at Corman, you could get 10,000 hours in about two weeks. So. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> and you got paid for, you know, 40 hours. But yes, you were doing 10,000 hours. So I was, I, by the time I was 27 and went to AFI, I had already been kind of a professional cameraman for nine years. So, Ben, we've done a really good job up until now of not mentioning the pandemic. Jesus Christ, Ilya, you blew it. <laughs> well, I, I did it for a good reason. Because back in April, when many parts of the country, including all of us in Southern California, were just starting to grapple with the ramifications of the coronavirus, a good friend of the show, producer and podcaster, Brendan Davis, was quite literally fleeing on one of the very last flights before travel was locked down from China in this country. That's right. Brendan, by the way, who I started out with uh, in my career, he and I worked on many super low budget movies in the Southeast together. Uh, Brendan told us his story, his crazy, crazy ass story, which I think also turns into kind of a haunting prediction, a prediction of the future, the future that we're currently living in about how the lack of a comprehensive response in our country, the United States, what that would mean for the future and how our lives would be affected. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, we're all living in that right now. Let's hear the clip from the interview with Brendan Davis. All right. So, yeah, basically seven and a half weeks ago, I evacuated China. I got out January 26th is, is I was on a flight and huge migration for the Lunar New Year. And the reports are just starting to really leak out that this thing is, is probably spreading a bit out of Hubei province and out of the city of Wuhan. And I have a few friends with relatives there who are in the medical profession and who are dealing with this on the front lines. So I was I was really hearing some things beyond what was in the press. And anyway, so short version of a really long story is my business partner started messaging me my my larry my writer director on this feature film that we're putting together that you know i was already planning to come back in three or four weeks because we've been working to close finance and then we go to paris to prep because it's set in paris so he starts messaging me saying uh and he's following what every day he messages every day about things he's back in palo alto and he's got a dad who was on the board of Stanford Medical School and a sister who's a virologist who used to work at the CDC and a lot of people and their friends, a lot of their friends and family are doctors and medical people. So he's giving me all the updated links to the the JAMA publications, the, the American Medical Associations thing. And he basically says, dude, I think you should get out. And what it was was one of the airlines announced they were going to be cutting back on their flights. And it wasn't one of the ones that I fly, and I forget which one it was. But nonetheless, it was an early warning. And so I started looking. So I get in this, this group chat on WeChat, which is like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all rolled into one in China. And I'm in a group, 500 Americans in Beijing specifically, American, American expats in Beijing. 
And a few of them were SARS veterans and, and, and longer. Some of them have been there a lot longer than that. I started to see other things that day. I saw that there was a restriction on like provincial highways closing to buses and large vans. I'm like, hmm. I saw and certain subway lines close anyway because the holiday, the Chinese New Year, very little, very limited ridership, stores are closed. But I was seeing announcements of more closures, like closing most of the system, essentially leaving like an east-west and a north-south that would end up getting you to the airport. Cutting to the chase, from making the decision, uh, I was out of there. From the moment I left my apartment, I was masked. I was wearing winter gloves. I didn't have any surgical gloves, and it was freezing. It was dead of winter at the time, so... in. What was um what was the news there like about this coronavirus? I mean, th- there was concern. There was you know they were telling people to wear you know, wear protective uh, clothing uh, or yeah. or masks. But I mean, uh, w- it certainly wasn't the lockdown. You know, no no travel sort of. This was ahead of all that. Yeah, this was ahead of all that. No, I I got out. Uh, you know, again to Larry's credit, he was saying I think you should get out early. Should go ahead and move. Let's not wait for this. Find another way to get the ticket. And my concern, I wasn't concerned about getting sick so much because I have a home office. Don't see that many people physically week to week anyway. A lot of Skype or Zoom, you know, a lot of calls, things like that, but not that many in person things. So I was more concerned about getting stuck because I'd spent a year and a half to that point, basically full time producing this movie, like the development, getting it funded. But so I was waiting, you know, I was waiting until the movie's going to buy my ticket. Right. I mean, this was in, this is this is a line I'm in the budget is travel producer to L.A. Spoke spoken like a true producer. Well, yeah. 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 It's right there. It's in the budget. You know, you're about to you're going to leave China shortly in a, in a matter of weeks. I flew out on United and five days later, they stopped all flights and many flights stopped that day. So I'm at the airport and, you know, the, the universal language when you look up at the departures, the universal language of uh oh is you see a bunch of red. <laughs> so, a bunch of you know, you don't have to speak Chinese to know, oh, that's canceled, that's canceled, that's canceled, you know. So, uh, so it was a bit of a mess, but I masked up, gloved up, uh, from the moment I left my apartment and then got into the uh, Aditi, which is the equivalent of Uber or Lyft to the airport, got in, other than pulling my mask down to, you know, for them to check my face, like for like security checks and stuff. I was masked the whole time. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't eat a bite of food. I got my own bottle of water. Once I had cleared security and all that jazz, like you do anywhere, I bought a bottle of water and I wiped it down. I, at the time I had a bunch of wipes and stuff. And I quite literally for 13 hours on the flight, it was exhale, unscrew my bottle of water, sneak it under my mask, have a sip, pull the mask back down, close the bottle, swallow water, then breathe again. And so I did that for 13 hours and doesn't make me a hero, but I'm just saying that's, that's an example of the kind of adaptation you have to make to be safe. And I had wiped the bottle down with sterile wipes, you know, uh, was constantly vigilant about that stuff. And I didn't take off, I mean, other than to change the mask real fast, I didn't take off mask until I had cleared everything at SFO, gotten out, wiped the handles of my bags down again after getting my checked bag from, you know, from, from baggage claim, wiped everything down thoroughly, 
and got outside. And then when I got in Larry's car and put my stuff up and sterilized my hands again, I finally took off that mask and, and I put it in the trash bag. 2020 was also the year we got to interview one of my all-time favorite indie horror comedy directors, Don Coscarelli. I don't know if you remember, but I believe it was our second interview ever was Chris Coleman, who was the uh, his DP on several of his films. He wrote and directed The Beastmaster, John Dies at the End, and Bubba Hotep. I'm really glad we got to do this interview because you have been constantly going on about John dies at the end as long as I have known you. I, so I'm yeah, no, no, no. It, <laughs> it's I'm one of my favorite you... movies, seriously, of at least of the last 20 years. Another famous cinematographer, John Alcott, who shot many of Stanley Kubrick's movies, including Barry Lyndon in A Clockwork Orange, and unfortunately can't be on the show as he sadly passed away decades ago, shot Don's film The Beastmaster. And here's a clip of Don telling us about how John Alcott was like, what a stand up guy and what an amazing cinematographer he was to work with so i'm dying to talk to you on the beastmaster i've seen the beastmaster a million times because again my dad took me to see it in the theater and i oh wow uh, hey he had good taste <laughs> so that movie was what like 1981 or 82, something 82 82 yeah. so i would have been 11 yeah. years old uh anyway so he took me to see it in the theater scared the crap out of me especially those creatures that like wrap their arms around you and, and dissolve your whole body love that stuff and then of course i saw it a zillion times on cable but i wasn't aware i had never looked into it until we were talking about trying to find it that it was shot by john alcott who yeah. you know shot some pretty huge stuff like he shot a lot of kubrick movies he shot a clockwork orange he also shot a movie that no one has ever heard of but and is a comedy but terrified me as a little kid probably more than any horror movie called who is killing the great chefs of europe i don't know i don't know why it scared me as much as it did but as a little kid i saw it on cable and there's like a shot of a guy's arm falling out of an oven and there was just it's it's a sight gag but it it, it creeped the shit out of me but anyway can you talk about working with uh somebody like him obviously we don't uh, john alcott passed away in 1986 80. i believe yeah yeah um, terrible loss yeah, yeah listen he was a great man and a, you know obviously won the academy award for maybe the most amazingly shot movie of all time which is barry linden and yes. if you re if you revisit the movie because that was back i guess he always did it but i'll say back in the day when kubrick would actually have you know an army of english and french soldiers and they would wait for the clouds to come in to get the right lighting and then shoot the <laughs> battle scenes so uh, and it was also the, the film that uh, uh, John working with cinema products, I think they developed this 0.7, I don't know if it was an F-stop or a T-stop lens so that they could shoot all these uh, grand sequences in candlelight. It was like and a so NASA really, satellite lens or something crazy, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was right. It was from some sort of NASA thing that they adapted. And then in uh, and, and, and the wow, the movie, it's, it holds up and looks fantastic today. But here was the thing. So I made Phantasm and, you know, like an idiot, I thought I got to do something big after it. You know, instead of just being <laughs> smart and doing another genre picture, I thought, well, I want to go back and do something like those great uh, Hercules and Hercules Unchained starring Steve Reeves. I love those the, those <laughs> movies. The, the, they called them the sword and sandal movies. And so uh, with my partner, Paul, we co-wrote the script uh, based on a sci-fi novel and it became The Beastmaster. So I was 26 years old and I had shot Fant. I had, I had filmed all of my movies, actually. My first three features, I was the cinematographer, co-cinematographer on that. Oh, wow. You know, when you're a, 
a DP operator, it's a lot of freaking physical work. I mean, you're, especially in the old days of film where you're pushing these cameras around and you're doing the dolly moves and you've got to do this. And then a tying in director and, and trying to direct and all that, a very difficult job. And so this movie was going to be big, although let me qualify that by saying it was still a low, Beastmaster was a low budget indie film. Yeah. And at the time we were too embarrassed to talk about the budget. And so there there's numbers saying that we'd spent $9 million and it was an epic. Okay. We spent about four and a half to $5 million on that movie back in 1982, which was not a lot of money if you go back and look at it in terms of the horses and the animals and the stunts and all of that stuff. So I, I, there was no question that I needed to hire a uh, cinematographer. And a producer friend mentioned that he was working with John Alcott up in Canada on a horror film called Terror Train. And yeah. like the alarm bells went off in my head. I'm thinking, well, if he's working in Canada on that, maybe we could get him. And so we made an outreach. And the timing was just perfect because Alcott wanted to relocate to Los Angeles and bring his entire family and, and live in Southern California and become a, you know, a Hollywood DP, basically, <laughs> which was great. And so, you know, we met with him. Just a super nice, gentle man, very intelligent, very soft-spoken, but steel spine, iron-willed. In any case, the sad part about it is, is that, you know, the process of making, you know, to get the larger numbers of millions, sometimes you really have to sell your soul. And mm. I really did on the Beastmaster because the financial partners I got involved with, there was so much creative interference on the making of the movie. And uh, it ended up, you know, it was a low budget movie, but we maximized everything to get shooting days because that's, you know, to aspiring filmmakers out that it's you know, out there. That's the key. I mean, the more days of shooting that you can have, the better the movie you, you make, period, the end. There's, that's all there is to it. And uh, we managed to organize the budget. So we got 72 shooting days. But oh unfortunately... God. It was 12 six-day weeks. Oh, <laughs> so man. it was, uh, anyway, that, what I, that, that takes me around to the point was is that I rarely, and I kick myself now, I rarely got to talk about, with Alcott about his uh, experiences working with Stanley. I mean, oh, wow. basically he would talk about, I would ask him, you know, I would frequently hear other crew members go, John, why are you out here on this movie, you know, working with him? And uh, he would basically <laughs> say he he just got tired of waiting for waiting around for Stanley because there was so much downtime and so much waiting always between projects and even during projects. You know, they build hiatuses in and what have you. And I think he wanted a little more uh, high octane career, a little more action. And it was it was a smart move. But uh, to, the, the one last uh, thing I could say about John Alcott was uh, what a great man, stand up guy, because uh, I think it was day three of the Beastmaster. The powers that be started thinking about firing me because they had this idea in their head that I could not direct action. And I, kept, I had to defend myself and go, hey, I had action in Phantasm. I, I, I put together those sequences, you know, and it, they didn't listen to me. But anyway, um, Alcott found out that uh, they were interviewing other directors, actually. And oh, wow. the, guy had, the guy had moved his family out to Southern California and, you know, leased a house and changed his whole life. And he just let it be known that if Don went, he would go. And they didn't fire me. And, you know, thank you, John.
Another person on my lifetime bucket list, no shit, was talking to documentarian Frederick Wiseman. His films were so influential to me in film school, and he's made 46 films, almost all of them documentaries, over his career. I understand his most recent, City Hall, is out now. Yes, definitely worth seeing and uh, hearing about his process. Shooting and editing his films is completely fascinating. He's an original. No one makes movies that are like his films. No one makes movies the way he makes films. He's got a, a technique all of his own. And here's a clip with Frederick discussing how he does it. What made you choose documentary? What drove you to to follow that? Well, the idea is that in ordinary experience, there's enough drama and comedy to match what you read in in fiction. Mm -hmm. And if you hang around long enough, uh, there's a good chance that you'll collect enough material out of which you can cut a dramatic narrative film. I mean, over the years, I've stopped using the word documentary because documentary, for me, always had the connotation of something that, you know, you should watch because it was good for you, uh, Mm -hmm. like (laughs) X-Flax. I think the word movie is good enough for me. I make movies, and I think I make dramatic narrative movies uh, that are based on on onstage events. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting way to think about it. I I, I could probably spend all of our time just talking about Titicut Follies, but Titicut Follies kind of introduces us to the way you structure a film, which is to say, uh, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like each scene is kind of tightly structured, but there isn't necessarily, we're not following one story, or, or if we're following a story, it's the story of the institution is maybe the, the hidden protagonist of your work. But what that means is characters come and go. We don't necessarily find out what happens uh, to, to every character. It's not building towards the kind of resolution in the in the traditional sense that a lot of other documentaries kind of like want to leave you with like, and here's how it all turned out. But Titicut Follies kind of leaves you with the sense of like, here's how it, what it was like to be there the whole time. Well, but the thing is, I think what I describe as the dramatic narrative is perhaps related to the abstract ideas that the film is trying to deal with. Mm -hmm. Because I think in every film, but certainly in my films, there's both the literal aspect and the metaphoric or abstract aspect. The literal aspect of, say, Titicut Follies would be it's a movie about daily life in a maximum security prison that houses people who, with behavior problems, who... Uh, can't be managed in normal prisons uh, because of their uh, either they're psychotic or they have some other behavioral problem that requires them to be segregated or what thought it was thought that they needed to be segregated. So that's the literal aspect. Uh, the metaphoric aspect is what are the implications of the scenes that I choose to show and the order in which I show them. For example, the City Cut Follies starts with a uh, sequence from a stage show that was put on each year by the inmates and staff called City Cut Follies. And there are, I think there are three, the scene in the middle of the film, which shows some of the show, and the film ends with the show. And instead of seeing review skits from a musical in the film, you see episodes from daily life. And so there's a whole showbiz metaphor for the structure of the film and some of the more abstract ideas that the film is meant to suggest. How do you uh, go about finding the subject matter and then identifying kind of the metaphorical story that you're going to tell? You know, mainly I just find a subject matter 
And most of the time, I don't know anything about the subject mm -hmm. uh, before I start. For example, in City Hall, I, I think I'd been in a City Hall once uh, in my whole life, if that. I don't even remember when that was. But the shooting of the film is the research. And then I find the film, I, I have no idea when I start what the themes or the point of view of the film are going to be. Mm -hmm. uh, but th that all emerges in the editing process. And I only work on the structure of the film at the end of the editing process. Uh, do you want me to describe the editing process or? I would love to hear you describe your editing process for sure. Uh, a couple of weeks after I come back from the shoot, uh, I start looking at the rushes. Uh, and typically I have around 150 hours of rushes. For City Hall, it was 104. For At Berkeley, it was 250 hours. Wow. Uh, but it generally is around 150 hours. And so it takes me about six weeks to look at all the rushes. And when I, I watch them, you know, in no particular order, usually I start off with sequence, sequences that I remember liking, because it's a way of uh, my getting interested in the material, knowing that as time goes on, I'm going to be completely absorbed in it and, and, and not really want to do anything else. And at the end of that six-week period, I set aside about 50% of the material that I, I'm not interested in. And the other 50%, I begin to edit the sequences that I think I might ultimately use. And it's only when I've edited all those so-called so candidate sequences that I begin to uh, work on the structure. And I edit all those sequences in close to final form uh, because I can't begin to work on this. I, I, I can't work on structure in the, in the abstract. I have to uh, have before me an edited sequence and then put it in relation to another sequence and see what the consequences are of that choice. Mm -hmm. So uh, after about seven or eight months of editing individual sequences, in three, I mean, I have all those in close to final form. In three or four days, I put together the first assembly. And the first assembly is usually 30 or 40 minutes longer than the final film. Uh, and then it takes me another six weeks where I work on the internal rhythm within the sequence and the external rhythm, uh, that is the, the, the arrangements, the transition shots between sequences. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when I have what I think is the final version of the film, I go back and look at all 150 hours all over again, just to make sure that there's nothing I've left out. Really? You go back and look at all the raw footage? I look at all the raw footage. Sometimes I look at it at high speed. Uh, but I, I make sure that I look at every single frame again in one way or another. Iris Ng is a cinematographer who goes back and forth between the worlds of uh, scripted narrative production and documentary. But she has a very different way of telling stories than Frederick Wiseman. To say uh, the least. She often explores deeply personal narratives with a unique point of view. She's a pretty big deal. She she shot Making a Murderer. Maybe you've heard of this little Netflix uh, thing and the Sarah Polly film, The Stories We Tell, as well as Shirkers, which is an, um, all of them amazing documentaries which integrate existing like home movie footage or other footage into the documentaries that she's making. And, uh, here's a clip of her talking about that approach to the movies that she shoots. I always ask narrative cinematographers, I kind of have a question. Maybe you have a thought about it, so I'll, I'll hit you with it. 
when you're reading a script, I have a belief that cinematographers either see it in pictures, like compositions, or they see it in lighting, like in colors. But documentary is a different thing because you're discovering it as you go. So what is the thing that you're given when you're making a documentary for the most part? And what is it that you see? Where do the visuals come from in a documentary for you? Well, it's definitely true that you are discovering it as you go. And the first thing that I get is a proposal, maybe a call from a producer or a director and just a one pager or just something in writing where I get a sense of what the project is. And before I have that first meeting, I like to have something to look at just to, to brainstorm a little bit. It's really about perspective for me and how objective or subjective is this point of view that we're trying to depict through this story or idea. I'll usually go to a first meeting asking a lot of questions about this subject matter so that I can get a sense of, is this a story where we're looking at a subject or do we want to really be in their point of view? Do we really want mm -hmm. to understand it from their perspective and be sympathetic to them? Because there's a big difference, I feel, between uh, looking at an issue and feeling like you're embedded in it and that you're, you're alongside the people who are living it. Yeah, that's something oddly that I, I couldn't articulate at the time, but came sort of years later as sort of a mantra to, to ask myself this all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but it came from working on Stories We Tell, which is, is very much about perspective and what the camera is trying to embody at any given moment. So what is its place in the situation and how is it supposed to behave? I think once you answer that question, you can talk about lenses and proximity between you and the subject and even lighting and whether we should be shooting this handheld or on sticks and when and how the camera should be moving. I think all of mm -hmm. that comes down to that answer. But do you have an opinion about journalist versus filmmaker, like where that line is? I and the camera have to be non-judgmental and to mm -hmm. tend to receive information and motion or whatever it is that's in the moment and to also be listening in order to capture something truthfully. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how those two, like what the relationship is in the way that I view it. It's just, that's my approach is, is to just be there to witness something and to take the techniques that I know in the way that the director and I have talked about making this film to shape and to create a perspective that suits, I suppose, the thesis. Your work as a cinematographer on, on things like the stories we tell and Shirkers is, is so ruthlessly personal. Is there a way that you can kind of talk about your approach to something when it's going to be such a personal story? Well, first of all, you are asked to be along for this ride. And I, I don't think the filmmaker really knows where it's going to go. Um, I think, you know, in stories we tell, like both, I mean, both of these films are personal excavations and they have, yeah. they both have incidentally, film material from the past that we can delve into that that holds secrets and that we're going to examine for some answers about the past. And they're both like lusciously beautiful, like it's it's super eight and it's 16 mil in all its glory. Right. And automatically yeah. you're going to have this nostalgia. You're going to leap into nostalgia when you when you see that footage. But it's also a contemporary search for the filmmaker. And you're also documenting that. So with Shirkers, Sandy had shown me the original footage and it's it it blew my mind because it was so beautiful like I'd never seen anything like that and to know that this film had never been released and and she had just found it recently was was kind of amazing it was really inspiring too I really wanted to work on this film with her and we knew that we were going to revisit some of the places in Singapore that that are related to the film and to some of the people who were involved and to there are all these parallels between this present search and and what the film was which is basically Sandy as a main character going around town looking for people to kill and you know and looking for people to to implicate and to involve in this story and to to collect people and we're sort of going on this re-road trip 
So how do you approach doing that in the digital age? Well, it, it sort of felt appropriate that, you know, we're not immersed in this sort of teenage world anymore where everything's kind of candy colored and beautiful. We're, it's 20 years later and it just made sense. I mean, we probably would have shot it, you know, in 4K digital anyway, but it made sense to have a, a mature, more mature, wider, sharper, uh, like more sober contemporary lens, like literally more sharper <laughs> to show that we're, we're not in that age anymore, but we're we're reevaluating something that that was like this amazing experience from the past. So still incorporating some of those candy colors and finding some quirky frames and, and not really being adhered so much to the conventional interview shot. But, you know, just sitting down with people in their environments and letting them be a little bit not as cohesive with each other as we might want to in any other film. And aside from that, just to have fun with it. And I guess in terms of the personal angle, you know, Sandy and I went to Singapore first for a week to film some people there. And months had gone by before we had finished the film by doing this sort of mini road trip in the States. So Poughkeepsie to visit Sophie, her friend Sophie, and upstate New York and um, through the Hudson Valley and up to Boston to shoot with some old friends of George's there and to New Orleans. And by that time, you you know, because you work on a film for so long and you get to sort of learn more and more about what the film's about, more and more it made sense that, yes, this is a film about a film and Sandy is trying to put together the past in a way and investigate this mystery of hers. But she is very much a part of it too. And like in stories we tell, there's this need for the audience maybe to feel like the director is part of this personal film too. Like it's not enough to, to hear their voice behind the camera and to, to know that they're editing the film and making it, but they kind of want to see them in there. And it just, it made sense because it was a film about a film to roll on Sandy, maybe directing people or having those conversations before the actual interview and just these sort of off the cuff moments and to turn the camera on her. Without a doubt, one of our most entertaining interviews this year was the commercial director, Bruce Van Dusen. Yeah, his book, 60 Stories About 30 Seconds, is entirely filled with war stories. If you like our war stories episodes, just read that book. It's all war stories. He hopped on to share some of those stories with us and the lessons that he learned. It was a given that as a day would go on, the agency and the client would make more and worse suggestions so that they would wind up taking whatever good and actually making it shitty. That was not their intent, but that was their, that was the outcome. Mm. So one of the things I learned to do, it took me about six, seven years to learn to do it. It's one of the stories in the book is I was shooting a, a, a laxative commercial and I'm working with a Broadway, uh, a woman who's just won the Tony incredibly talented woman. And she's taken a monologue about constipation and she's just made it amazing. So we shoot about 15 takes and I think, yeah, you know, this is great. We're done. And the writer suddenly is appears next to me and I, he looks very unhappy. And I said, what was the problem? He goes, she doesn't get it. I said, she doesn't get what? He said, she doesn't get peristalsis. Peristalsis is a scientific term for taking a dump. So I said, oh, no, 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 no. She definitely gets that. She seriously gets that. I know she does. He goes, no, she's not getting that. I don't hear it in her voice. And I said, oh, you know, I, I don't think you can be serious. But I said, what do you want to do about that? He said, somebody's got to explain peristalsis to her. What? I said, well, yeah. So I said, well, listen, that's not going to be me. And he goes, fine. 
I'll talk to the actress. So the guy goes over and spends his five minutes of importance embarrassing himself. I go over to the actress and I say, I'm really sorry. And she won't even make eye contact with me. We do the, we finish it. Of course, the writer thinks everything's better because he's made this important contribution. But what I learned was that I needed to protect the actors because that was going to happen every time. Even as I got to be more and more successful and people gave me a lot more freedom. In fact, sometimes total freedom, there was still always a point in the day when something dumb would happen. Otherwise, I'd have no fucking book. (laughs) Well, it was all worth it. (laughs) So I learned that the trick was I'd listened and absorbed to whatever the, the nonsense was. I'd nod my head. I'd go to the sound man and I would say to him, turn off the mics so that they can't hear anything over in Video Village or anywhere else. And I would go over to the actor or the actress, and I would say, you've done great. I think we're done. The thing is, now what we have to do is this thing called advertising. And that will make no sense to you. I'm going to say things that you'll go, that doesn't make any sense compared to the thing you just told me. It will make no sense to me either. But it's the people who do advertising trying to be important and contribute. So you just got to roll with me for a It's going to take 10 minutes, and then we're going to be done. Then I'd walk back to the camera, turn on the microphone. Boom. You know, I'd say, do it standing on your head. Now do it crying. You know, do it with your, your finger in your ear. And the boom, 10 takes later, we're done. But it was a matter of being able to realize that it was just a lock. It was a given that somebody was going to say something and it wasn't going to be very smart, but it wasn't my job to yell at them. I spent a lot of, I would spend a lot of time yelling at them. You know, I would say things like, all right, fine, we'll do it your way. And then we'll do it the right way. This was not advancing my career. Yeah. You know, so I, and I, I figured I needed to see if I could make it a career. Julie Taymor is a rare kind of filmmaker in that she seamlessly moves back and forth from the mediums of theater to film, and her aesthetic in both is truly one of a kind. She's a force of nature and really an incredible career, and if if you're not familiar with Julie Taymor, first of all, what's wrong with you? But you should definitely look her up online and see all the different stuff that she's done over the years, and I particularly The Lion King on Broadway, for instance, maybe? Yeah, just just a little thing like The Lion King, but uh, uh, I loved hearing her talk about how she put together the look for her new film, The Glorias, which was, of course, the biopic of feminist icon Gloria Steinem. So in Glorias, there's sort of a a brilliant kind of metaphorical uh, framing device, if you will, where you have Gloria Steinem at various ages and all of her herselves on a bus ride sort of able to engage in, in dialogue with each other, which actually feels to me almost more like something I would see in a play than something I often see in films. Where did that idea come from? Was that was that something that came from your theater background? Was that something that was already in the script? It just came from, I think it's the way that I think, which is, mm-hmm. and the way that I work in film or, or in theater or opera. I have a sprawling road book that mm-hmm. I have to make into a road picture of a certain length. It covers 80 years of a woman's life yeah, and so yeah. many, many decades of costume, of location, of everything. So what is the unifying principle? What is going to keep all these disparate, with 100 locations in India, and Chicago, New York, uh, Minneapolis, Houston, South Dakota, you know, Miami, 
So you've got all of these elements and you need something that is the glue, the spine. And what I call this activity or whatever, what I do is I'm trying to get the ideograph of the whole piece. Mm -hmm. I'm abstracting it down to a single concept. It can be a visual concept. It could be sound. It's like a leitmotif in music, you know, and what would that be? And I said, well, this is a journey across America. The Greyhound bus is the archetypal American image that, that would represent a road, the road traveling. And yeah. the road with this beautiful, you know, uh, perspective which you can be above or below or low, has the yellow slashed line. So that bus where the, all the Glorias can congregate, they're either alone on the bus or in pairs or four of them. Sometimes they're even four on, but they're not really together. Like when the fathers died, you know, mm. they each have their own way of looking out the window and seeing the car that meant so much to them of the father. You know, they're not really together. It's abstract, it's surrealistic. It's poetic, it's cinematic. I actually wouldn't be able to do that in theater. I mean, I try to do in cinema what I can't do in theater. And what I do in theater is not what theater can do. Like The Lion King, it was a movie, I put it on stage. Juan Darien, it's, it's a magical realist tale, I put it on stage. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I, I love to find, and sometimes I'll use puppetry because I can play with scale in the theater. Like a giant head and that's a close up with a crystal tear coming out of the eye. Mm -hmm. close-up of a tear. So I do work differently, but I, I back to the bus. The bus, uh, I decided, and Rodrigo was completely with me on this, to make it black and white, because I didn't want the audience, as they're watching, the viewers to think, okay, this is the next scene. It's not. It's, it's jumping into an interior landscape that we have exteriorized. Mm -hmm. I guess I, I sort of feel like that kind of storytelling device is something I'm used to seeing in a play. And it's uh, refreshing and interesting to see it done cinematically because uh, so few films are kind of willing to kind of move into into a surrealistic look. Um, I'm always curious why more theater directors don't do film and vice versa. Like why why those two disciplines feel like there's a there's a wall between them. Well, there is. honestly, most theater directors are not visual. They're about uh, the play, dialogue, and actors, and movement and staging. But they're yeah. not because most most plays, not the ones I do, not Shakespeare, but most plays are in a living room, uh, office building. Uh, you know, there's like five or six yeah. scenes. So there are very good directors who do move back and forth. But it isn't common. Mike Dickles was one of the best, you know, who moved very well and was able to move in theater and film. Uh, Zeffirelli was very famous for very splendiferous operas, and he was obviously a very visual filmmaker. Uh, Sam Mendes, both. You know, there are, there are directors who are equally talented in both, both uh, mediums. But I think even of the people that you just listed, the work that you do brings a visual punch to it. Like the visual punch is often part of the point. The work with the actors and everything in, in all of your films, and I think I've seen all of them, is really, you know, amazing and strong, like uh, going way back to Titus. Like, you I know, love like, Titus. It's my favorite. <laughs> I, I, I love that. And But I'm thinking about that visual when the daughter's hands are cut off and they're like tree limbs.
limbs on the stumps and just the the visual punch of that but then you have that kind of stuff in Gloria's where you have these transitional things like the Wizard of Oz inspired uh, sequences which again you couldn't do that exactly like that in theater but you do see kind of surrealistic or expressionistic things done in theater and I feel like we don't see that that kind of uh, look or feel done today can you talk about the construction of those sequences you know in Gloria's where you came up with those ideas again were those in the script or were those developed I wrote them into the script. So got it, got it. I think that yeah, early movies had it. Murnau, mm-hmm. Lang, you know, Metropolis. The early German expressionist films were highly stylized and theatrically yeah. realistic because they couldn't go on location. They didn't have light enough cameras. They didn't have the money. Whatever. So as soon as cameras and video cameras became so easy, people got stuck on realism, on what what they call realism, what they call naturalism. Yeah. And then with, with um, green screen and blue screen and post, you can make Titanic or you can make uh, something that you can't actually shoot look real. And people get very upset when it's stylized. Like The Tempest, I absolutely adore Ben Wishaw as Ariel in The Tempest. But some people think it's cheesy because it's clearly a visual effect. You yeah. know, it's very much going uh, after an old photographic thing. Um, remember the horses? like where you see the after image moving. I did that on purpose. I think mm-hmm. there's something beautiful and it's about air and it is to be abstract. But people have gotten very, with television and all, they got very literal minded. Now I think we're changing. I mean, something like uh, Watchmen is very surrealistic, mm. right? Very. Then, but most of what you see in drama and all the, the you know, the detective stuff is ultra realism. So there are directors out there who are beginning to use more and more stylized imagery to tell their stories. And I know the audiences are hungry for it Mm -hmm. because even Marvel comics is not reality, but they make it feel like it's real. You know, Superman or Spider-Man's flying, it better look like it's real as crappy as it looks. So, uh, (laughs) you know, I think that way you asked, how do I get to these things? Well, I, there's a scene, the tornado scene where, the younger Gloria, Alicia Vikander, is being asked by a journalist if, if she's offended that he thinks of her as a very attractive sex object. And at that age, which is pre-40, or you know, she's like early 20s, she um, doesn't have anything to say. She's so shocked that he says such an incredible remark. And of course, in my film, Julianne Moore then takes her place. They look the same, although she's older. And yeah. she, she is able to answer him because as Gloria got older, she had an answer. But in reality, in reality, Gloria Steinem says nothing. And I was interested behind the smile and the enigmatic expression, what's she thinking? Mm-hmm. What are women thinking? What did Hillary think when Trump was stalking her in that incredible moment in their debates? Did she say what she was thinking? Of course not. She couldn't. Like many women can't say what they're thinking, what they'd love to say when someone comes up with these outrageous racist or sexist comments. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what I do is I visualize what she's thinking. So it might be a two second thought or three second thought, but I open it up and I create all the four Glorias answer his question about their uniform. And I create a tornado, like he swept up this, this interviewer, TV interviewer, into the tornado that is inspired by the Wizard of Oz, but we also have 
the little girl on a broom like a Harry Potter witch. I bring up the whole witch bitch phenomenon and <laughs> all the Glorias we suspended with green screen. You know, they didn't know what the hell the scene was about or what it was. I, mean, <laughs> I had more people going, really? What is this about? And I just said, look, did Gloria make this up? No, it's my contribution. It's my contribution <laughs> to the story. But now, once they saw it, because a lot of the work, the, the first part, Rodrigo was able to cinematography. So Rodrigo, we took our studio that Kim Jennings designed, our TV studio, and he lit it to start to turn red. And our special effects, we had it smoking and we had the wind blowing the curtains and all of that. We get to a certain point, we get all the intimacy of the four Glorias doing their action. The dress that gets blown up, the, the um, nun's habit, and we see the skateboard <laughs> bunny and all that. Then we get to a point where we're transitioning into the tornado. That's when I went to the, the, another studio a week later. We hooked up our various Glorias. We had a huge crane that, that Rodrigo was operating. We had the special effects guy with wires attached to each woman one at a time as they were zooming around in space. And I said, it will be the camera moving is what will create the feeling that they're flying. Yeah. And I knew that most of this was going to be a post-production affair. So then I had very good houses on the whole film, working all over the world, you know, but mostly in Canada and various houses in America and New York to create this, it's complete CGI, the tornado and the backgrounds. And I decided to layer it more red because when it was in full color, it, you, it, felt, it didn't feel uh, stylized enough. So the, the, the red emotion that is not just anger, it's witty mischief. That's really what it is. And then, of course, when the poor interviewer is spinning around in his chair in the center of this tornado, and they're going double, double, toil and trouble, and you've got the witches from Macbeth, and you've got the little girl cackling. You know, they're playfully tormenting him. He comes back down, and we're back in the studio. And behind the glass wall, the engineers and the assistant to the director who's shooting this interview says, what's she doing? And the young woman, his assistant says, not answering him. Although Ron Howard is mostly known for his narrative work, he sometimes dabbles in documentary as well. Yeah, he's done a bit of it. Uh, it was great to hear Ron talk about how he completely committed and threw himself uh, fully into making a doc, bringing all kinds of attention to the massive fire that destroyed Paradise, California, and in general, how he approaches documentary filmmaking. Creatively, since you were making this documentary while you were making Hillbilly Elegy, I'm, I'm just really curious how doing a verite documentary such as this uh, informed your your filmmaking style and, and your approach to, to narrative filmmaking. Because I always think of your work as being kind of like very classical and composed and, you know, like thought out and, and documentary is so, you know, run by the seat of your pants kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have found certain projects where... I've 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 wanted to take especially in sequence by sequence take things in a, in a, in a little more spontaneous looking direction, mm -hmm. particularly Frost Nixon um, and Rush <laughs> and Rush. But with Frost Nixon and Sal Totino, we literally didn't even rehearse scenes. Just two operators went in and started shooting. Oh wow! And and so I would have a point of view, a shot list, a set of goals, but these were not really. I would save the design shots almost as pickups. I, I first just wanted to see, you know, what Sal and Andrew, who was the, who was the uh, B camera operator, you know, what they were sort of 
finding in the scene. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it wasn't all the scenes, but probably about easily a third of them mm -hmm. uh, were staged that way. I mean, they kind of weren't staged. They were, yeah. I roughed it in in rehearsal a little oh, bit. Oh, wow. And then I just let, let, let it happen. So, so I, I had good luck with that and enjoyed that uh, and felt like it gave, it gave it a kind of energy. Did it again with Rush. Anthony Dodd-Mantle is, of course, an experienced uh, documentarian as well. And so I had it in mind to do some of that with Hillbilly Elegy. And in hiring Marie Salberte, that was part of the appeal was her background and her naturalism. And so it's already something that I was looking for. I think it influenced less the shooting of Hillbilly Elegy, which went very quickly because it wasn't a wildly expensive movie, but more the editing. I was, I was really editing both films simultaneously for a good stretch, where, to the point where I would spend a half a day on Hillbilly Elegy and a half a day on Rebuilding Paradise. Oh, wow. And there were a couple of scenes in Hillbilly Elegy that I know were reformed. My ideas were inspired, not by something that I was directly doing with Paradise, but by my my, my a kind of a growing sense of, of, you know, the documentary aesthetic and sensibilities. And uh, it led to some, you know, some interest, a few interesting editorial choices that, and, and, and some ideas that I don't, I don't think I ever would have done before. I, I don't think I would have looked in that direction for the approach to the scene before. Are you, uh, I, I don't want to ask the question, the, the question of which direction do you prefer, but do you have plans to do more documentaries? Was it, did it whet your appetite to, to dig in and do more stuff like this? Yeah, we're, we're, uh, we've been slowed by COVID to some extent, but we're still finding our ways to, 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 to cover the world central kitchen and chef Jose Andres, uh, for a film. And, um, <laughs> We, we've been kind of borrowing footage and asking people to shoot on their cell phones or whatever they get. And, and yeah. uh, you know, not, not unlike the opening sequence in uh, Rebuilding Paradise. But now, now we get to go in with our team and start shooting. And so we're, we're, you know, we're underway with that film. Well, that's amazing. Um, we, we're about out of time and we want to be really respectful of your time. But we, uh, we really appreciate you hopping on and doing this. Oh, well, it, it, yeah, it's great to talk to you. Great to uh, connect with you again, Ben. Absolutely. I'm glad to see that you're, uh, you are, you are always a multi, multifaceted, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 creative force. Oh. And it's, uh, it's uh, putting that on my business card. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> great to see you uh, throwing your energies behind this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Loved your film. I, I hope it wins all the awards. <laughs> it's great oh, work. Thank, thank you so much. All right, Ben, take care. So that was the Cinepod in 2020. I hope that you enjoyed this highlight reel thing that we've we've done. We've never done it before. And I hope that 2021 brings even more amazing uh, people in here to talk. I, I don't know how we top this year. How do we top this I, year, Ilya? I don't know. We're, we're going to try our best. But for our regular listeners, uh, just because we had this special episode doesn't mean that we're not going to be back next week with more. So uh, we'll be back. And uh, you've got all kinds of great stuff to look forward to. Thanks a lot for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.